Welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch as we examine the ever-changing relationship between the UK and China. Our aim is fairly simple, to learn more about the decision makers, ideas, threats and opportunities that underpin this bilateral, and to inject some complexity back into the discussion. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent happening, what's going on with some experts, and look at the parliamentary output and field some questions from you. Hello, Steve. I'm joining you from sunny Croatia, where I've been testing some of the local beers and powering through June. Has it been a busy week? Uh, yeah, good. I think you've missed a few things in the UK-China space. Oh, really? I mean, obviously, we're trivially starting this podcast, but obviously, it's been a tough week in the UK-China space. Three weeks into the podcast, uh, it almost feels like three years of content. Some of the major UK-China bilateral events have just taken place this week. So, yeah, slightly difficult and challenging to navigate, but that's what today's show is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I guess we can kick off with what we what the big case is right now, what the big story is right now, which is about two alleged Chinese spies is how the Sunday Times has termed it arrested in March and currently out on bail, one of whom was working in Westminster and one of whom lived in Oxford. And Steve, what did we wake up and see on, uh, on Monday morning? The news over the weekend was just completely shocking. But what was even more shocking was then on the Monday morning, the Sunday Times had led with a picture of us with the, the, the suspect. You know, so completely shocked in regards to the suspect, shocked in regards to the photo that was being used. And I guess maybe a regret is if I knew this photo was going to be used, I would have worn a nicer suit. Yeah. And they, I think they referred to you as Stephen Lunch rather than Stephen Lynch and called you director of the uh, Chamber of Commerce in India. And ironically, the picture that was used to me was from a panel I'd hosted called Defeating the Dictators. No, exactly. And again, just to kind of address this directly, I personally didn't know the suspect very well at all. Uh, we had limited interaction at that specific event where I was pictured with Alicia Kearns speaking at the China Research Groups. I was actually presenting the realities of doing business in China. But I guess the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, the UK-China space is actually very small. There's not many organisations um, involved in the, in the UK-China bilateral. Yeah, that's exactly right. So on Sunday, on Saturday evening, actually, the Sunday Times released a story saying that these two suspects have been arrested under a very old law we have in the UK here, uh, and part of the Official Secrets Act is how they reported it. And then the Sunday Times took the next step of naming one of the suspects the following day. We're going to follow the guidelines and the uh, procedure of every other media publication and absolutely not name that suspect, the alleged suspect. It's an open uh, and ongoing case right now. That's very clear, and that's where our line is, along with the rest of the media on this too. But what, what, are the, what do we know so far in terms of the hard facts here, Steve? So obviously, the suspects were arrested under the anti-espionage laws, the Official Secrets Act. The suspect has come out and stated he is completely innocent. And just to state he hasn't been charged, but was arrested back in March. Beijing's line has been that it's a compl completely false information and malicious slander. We then heard the Speaker in the House of Lords, Lindsay Hoyle, state the suspect cannot be named in Parliament. And to which we then heard rigorous debate in the chamber uh, discussing uh, these laws and discussing the case in general and indeed overall the UK-China relationship. So what I think would be best is if we heard directly from the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and his stance on the potential suspected spy in Parliament. The whole House is rightly appalled about reports of espionage in this building. The sanctity of this place must be protected. 
and the right of members to speak their minds without fear or sanction must be maintained. We will defend our democracy and our security. So that's the government's line. Naturally, there are some critics of the government's position on China, and there are some critics of how the government has handled this episode. One of those leading and consistent critics is IPAC's Ian Duncan Smith, who asked the, the government to clarify, really, what their view on China is. Is China a threat or is an opportunity? What would it take to change China from being one to the other and vice versa? And these words matter. A threat matters in the sense that we have legislation coming through Parliament right now. The National Security Act, the National Security Investment Act has come through too. And there's, there's parts of it, such as the foreign influence registration scheme, where there's two tiers. And if we decide that China is a threat, as it were, it would likely end up in the enhanced tier, which means there are extra checks for people who are engaging with Chinese uh, diplomats and similar things to that. So it will be worth keeping a close eye on to see how this debate develops over the coming months. Sir Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, can I ask my right honourable friend, uh, it's of course appalling news that we have a potential cell operating in and out around Westminster, uh, an espionage cell, uh, and I as a sanctioned individual alongside many of my colleagues are particularly perturbed about this particular news. Yep. But that notwithstanding, I don't suppose it should come as perhaps any surprise as my honourable friend's committee, the Security Committee, warned that the government was ill-prepared for this and the security measures that were necessary were not available. I therefore ask my right honourable friend a very specific question. This is, when did the Foreign Secretary get uh, told about this investigation? Was it before he went to Beijing? And if he went to Beijing with this knowledge, did he raise it with the, his counterpart in Beijing? Because it's very important to know whether we have actually already said it. It's no good, by the way, coming to the Spatchbox with respect and telling us that we don't talk about this. The Prime Minister did, and the investigation is not complete yesterday. So I want to know what the Foreign Secretary did. And can I just say to my right honourable friend, very importantly, that the problem lies in the mess we've got into over what we define China as with respect to us. So... We literally don't know what the suspect has been accused of. We do not know the specifics of the type of information being shared. And again, speculation has varied from he's a sleeper agent uh, and been embedded in the government for five years to, you know, selling state secrets or right the way to he's just trying to influence the debate. It's, it's, it's really speculation at this point. So Richard Dearlove, the former head of the MI6, captures this perfectly. Well, I'm not prepared to speak or speculate on what we do to them. But I think that, you know, one has to have eyes open uh, in a relationship with a country like China. Intelligence collection and the exercise of influence in a clandestine fashion is just part of the game or, let's say, the international scene as they play it. And I would say that, you know, what the Chinese deserve is reciprocity in their relationships overseas. And I think it's clear that we should keep in mind that approach to this problem. Look, the United Front Department has something like 40,000 employees. It has an unlimited budget and it pays people um, to promote Chinese communist interests. So obviously this story has prompted debate as to how we should continue to engage with China, whether we should continue to engage with China when they may have been spying when did the top of government find out this was the case, et cetera, et cetera. And once again, it has seemed to illustrate, at least for certain parts of parliament and parts of the media, that there is no joined up approach when it comes to our thinking and overall strategy with regards to China. 
We should caveat again by saying this is an ongoing legal case and speculation is all it is at this stage. As Sam mentioned, you know, the UK's response, the government's response, it doesn't want to label China as a threat. They've come out and said it's a systemic challenger. Uh, Rishi has openly said with his meetings at Li Tiang, he wants to be raising these concerns in the room with China. One thing I will say is speaking for a large proportion of people who've reached out to me in the last few days, those people who are China watchers, those who have lived in China or worked in China or even currently in China, you know, they have knowledge and insight into the country, the culture, the people, the business environment that will by, by its very nature be nuanced, you know, possibly more balanced. And I hope that we don't further polarize thought, meaning that if people use this information to present a different narrative or, you know, what is perceived a more balanced perspective on China, they should not be categorized as a threat, you know, and they shouldn't be silenced. You know, this we can use this information to support the UK's approach to China and support the UK's decision making on China. And I think from my perspective, a lot of people have reached out and I, I would just like to make that point. The more information we have available to us, not in regards to this case, but in regards to the overall approach to crafting a China strategy, the stronger that strategy can be. And that means you know, getting information from as wide a source as possible to produce. And it could well be that we produce a hardened China strategy than we currently have. It could well be the other way. But the point is that it must be produced from a position where we've accessed as much information as possible. As debate continues to rage in Parliament, which it should, it continuously comes back down to, to what's next. We asked this a lot last week in regards to the James Cleverly visit. But again, what is next? And I think just a really informative uh, clip from Lord Hammond, who discusses the relationship and about what could come next. Well, my view of China has always been that we should approach China with our eyes wide open. Um, you know, it's not a surprise to me this morning, and I hope it's not a surprise to um, many people, that China is spying on us. Uh, many people are spying on us. And when we catch them out doing it, we need to be robust in our response, as we are when we find spies from Russia or Iran or any other country. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should cut trade and investment ties, that we should simply go into a defensive crouch. China is a fact of life. It's the world's second largest economy. It's our fourth largest trading partner. And we've got to work out how we live with China, deal with China uh, in a way that is appropriate, given the level of challenge that China represents to us. Challenge uh, in terms of values, uh, challenge in terms of, uh, of direct um, threat to our national security interests. And we have to take a rounded view. I don't think it helps just to say, we've caught them out with a spy, um, therefore we have to cancel everything. That's not the way to secure our best long-term national interest. So transitioning away from this story and onto another story which has attracted the entire world's attention, the G20 in India finally arrived and happened. As we know, the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was out there where he received adoration in the papers. And it's a really interesting chance to examine one of my favorite things, which is how does the UK present itself on the global stage? We were incredibly fortunate this week that Steve had a chance to sit down and speak to Hannah Ryder, CEO of Development Reimagined, to get her view on how the UK performed and what some of the key moments were from the G20. So hi, Hannah. Hope all is well. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on the podcast. In the recent G20, this seems to be completely overshadowed by the geopolitics. And as we've just discussed previously, the overshadowing in regards to some of the announcements of the African Union joining the G20. I don't think this has been picked up in the international press, specifically in the UK. So could you just reflect on what this announcement means 
for both G20 nations and African countries going forward? And then if I can promise that little bit extra, what does this mean for UK, China as well? Well, um, it's really funny that you say it's sort of not been picked up in, in of course, it's been picked up in, in African media and, and some of the sort of more internationally focused media, Al Jazeera and so on. And, and yes, it has had some coverage in some of the UK newspapers to a small amount, but it is a very important shift with the idea that the African Union has now been agreed to be a permanent member of the G20, which previous to this, or now it's, I guess one would call it the G21, previous to this had 19 um, countries and one region represented. And that region was the European Union. But European Union and African Union, uh, the African Union in its original formation, the Organization of African Unity was created just six years after the European Economic community. These two regions have been arguably the most regionally integrated in the world. And so there's a good reason for incorporating both of them into the G21 to be able to really impact global and um, economic and financial decision making. And I think that's really it. If you think about what the G20, G20 now, G21 is, you can think of it as the economic and financial equivalent to the UN Security Council. UK is lucky enough to have a position on both uh, and permanent veto membership with the Security Council and also and also with the G20, permanent member of that. But the African Union so far has been uh, excluded with only one country from the region, South Africa, being part of it. So it's, it's a big shift for the African continent and the way it's being um, interpreted. So, so again, I think that's that's really fascinating to hear. But wh- why now? Well, and you also asked, what does it mean for UK and China? And I think one of the things to be aware of is that both the UK and China prior to this summit in India were countries that had said, we do want the African Union to be a permanent member of the G20. UK had said it in the Immigration Review and China had said it prior to that. In fact, China was the first country at heads of state level, even before the US, to say that uh, that they would like uh, the African Union to be part of the be part of the G20. That's been not because of kind of general geopolitics necessarily, although I think the calculation from the G20 perspective is well, yes, it makes sense. But it was really because the presidency of the African Union at the time in 2022, President Macky Sall from Senegal uh, had taken this issue up. He said this this is something which. There has been a big push towards more voice and um, strengthening of Africa's global representation, especially ever since COVID-19, a real kind of realisation that African countries really don't speak much and can't really, haven't got a strong voice in these international um, settings. That's an African perspective on it, of course, whereas others might interpret it, well, you know, we've had uh, the BRICS expand, so maybe the G20 is expanding, there's this kind of a new idea and it's not so just sort of factually this isn't a new very very new idea and in fact from the African perspective the African Union has wanted to be part of the G20 since 2009 so that was a year after it became a heads of state uh, heads of state grouping so it's been a long time coming. Parts of the world now increasingly are gathering towards a now expanding BRICS format where China seems to be playing more of a leading role the global west seems to be aligning more around G20 seven summits. Do you think that this G20 or now the G21 is the best remaining hope 
of keeping the principles of multilateralism alive. If you spoke to most African leaders, they would talk about the UN really being the best hope of keeping multilateralism alive, and in particular UN General Assembly, where you've got one country, one vote. Mm. But at the same time, you do need different, what we call plurilateral formations, to be able to get through specific issues. And there's always a need, even, you know, I was a climate change negotiator for many years, and while you've got your UN formats and so on, you always do need a smaller room and a smaller group of countries, effectively the most powerful ones in many cases, to be able to kind of come to real understanding and, and, and work things out. That is a, a typical typical way of doing things. And the fact is G20, because it isn't just a group of like-minded countries, which G7 definitely is a group of like-minded countries, I don't know whether BRICS necessarily completely falls into that category especially in expanded bricks in many ways <laughs> the expanded bricks is almost the opposite but nevertheless g20 is a group of powerful important countries and regions that are taking very strong economic and financial decisions and that's why they exist and i, I think that's again that's why the uk itself also wants to remain on that table was still also going to G7 and similarly China too. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point and I suppose just getting getting back to the I suppose the the overarching narrative heading into the the G20 was the fact that the Chinese president was not attending the meeting. This obviously disappointed many of the leaders including the UK who are hoping to host a a bilateral at the sidelines of the event. So when it comes to this expansion of the G20 from an Af- African perspective, do you think this showed a lack of commitment, lack of willing, or a lack of leadership from China? Well, so again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, China was the first country at heads of state level to say that they supported the expansion of the G20. So that was very clear. And even in all of the messaging prior to G20 in Indonesia, for example, before this is that was the one last year, China was saying that they do support this expansion. So I think that was clear from an African perspective. And also remember that at BRICS, South Africa, for instance, who was part of a discussion, there was a China-Africa dialogue that was hosted on the sidelines of BRICS with President Xi. So that was the moment for many African leaders to host their bilaterals. There was bilaterals with Senegal, Ethiopia, etc. So they did have those. And also talking about bilaterals, many African leaders have been visiting China since China opened up from COVID-19. Um, so far, I think right now, uh, Zambia, the Zambian president is in China. So far, we've had nine visits from African leaders to China. So they are engaging very proactively. So from an African perspective, it's not really, China's going to have its position for G20. And as long as, as long as those are well understood prior to the summit of what's going to be discussed in if it's a premier, that's just as important in some ways as as, uh, as President Xi, because the positions are clear. So it does seem that the narrative of Xi missing this and his speculation that maybe he's not committing to the G20, it seems slightly overplayed, in, essentially, in, in, in my opinion, because a lot of these bilaterals have taken place already. So again, China's sort of this overarching narrative, China's moving away from the G20 seems to be slightly overplayed. Yeah, I I don't think it's a case of moving away from the G20. I think the G20 remains really quite important to China, as do all of the other formations. 
of course, there's many other activities going on. There's BRICS. Obviously, China's also hosting the Belt and Road Forum coming up soon. So there's a lot to be working on. But at the same time, I can see why countries were disappointed not to have that opportunity. But then, you know, then be proactive and try and find other opportunities. There will be many others. And then... This is a UK-China podcast, so maybe uh, be remiss of me if I didn't ask. Maybe a very broad but sort of big question to end. Do you think there is space for the UK-China to have a collaborative role in global governments, especially when it comes to Africa? Well, I think the first starting point has to be to really understand African views on global governance. Things like the Forum on China-Africa Corporation have provided a space for African governments to share their views on global governance with China and therefore China to start to use some of those positions, like the G20, for instance. You know, It's having those dialogues between the countries and the regions that really can make a big difference. And I think there's a question about whether the UK is at this point engaging enough with African countries and leaders to really understand what African views are on global governance to actually then work out what do African countries want? Where is our opportunity for collaboration? And it could be on things like G20. There's an opportunity for the UK to support the African Union to engage well on, on G20, you know, kind of think think through its planning for engagement on the G20. And China could even do the same. But there's also so many others, you know, things like the African continental free trade area. Um, China was also talking, again, at this dialogue recently about um, the Pan-African payment system that's being set up by Afrexim Bank and, and a few others, which is trying to kind of be able to convert currencies on the continent, not internationally, but currencies on the continent more smoothly. That's something that the UK could engage with. And that there are there are efforts to do that from the foreign office, but it's whether those are opportunities that sort of, in a sense, sort of neutral ground where there's a mutual interest. And I think there's it's a really complicated question about whether there is a mutual interest, but we do know what the African perspective is, but you just have to listen first. And we can dig, we could get a lot further into that. And I'd love to have you on, a, on another podcast, but it's been really helpful just to get your insight and perspectives on the G20 um, and certainly the complexities of the, the global issues moving forward. So just an enormous thank you. So I found it absolutely fascinating hearing from Hannah. And again, Going into the G20, it seemed the most fragmented ever. And a huge part of that was that just the p- pure nature that Xi Jinping was not attending. It seemed to take so much oxygen away from the G20. But I think the overshadowed uh, piece of news this, this week is definitely that the African Union now makes it the G21. The 55-member African Union is now joined the G20, and that's par- on par with the European Union in order to make this grouping more representative um, of global power. So again, I think that's a really critical story um, that we can certainly dig into um, in the next few weeks. There are two things I love that begin with D, disco and diplomacy. And I think fundamentally, it's an amazing thing that the African Union will have more of a represented voice now on the international stage. It comes obviously at at a fairly critical time for as as Hannah said, like development internationally. And it's something to look, as you say, something we're going to look into here, definitely. How does the UK fit into that? You know, the foreign secretary has often spoken about his interest in working with other countries on debt and renegotiation, debt to developing countries, and climate change obviously underpins a lot of these conversations too. And what I actually find really interesting this week as well, because we're also straight on the back of um, Africa Climate Week, and we also heard from the opposition. David Lamy also came out today and focused 
on the global south and how important that might be for a Labour government. So again, these are really big uh, shifting geopolitical stories that we must monitor because the UK and China have a role in the multilateral world. I'm going to be completely honest and transparent, Sam. I think there is a, a news story which has gone even more overshadowed than the G20 and indeed the Chinese spy story. Um, and that's actually Sam's talk TV interview in which he discussed panda diplomacy and actually maybe more interesting, panda mating. Well, joining us now is Sam Hogg, founder of Beijing to Britain, a company that provides analysis into our relationship with China. And now you're talking about pandas, <laughs> which I think is crucial because we have a very strained relationship with China at the moment. Uh, but we're not going to talk about that. But one thing we do love in the UK oh, no. is a panda. Um, people are going to be devastated about this, surely. They are. I mean, pandas are a fantastic piece of soft power from the Chinese government, the Chinese state. They sort of lease them across the world. People go along, they visit with their kids, with their families. As you say, who doesn't love a panda bear? For, for, for a young age, young people will associate China with this, this sort of <laughs> harmless, gorgeous bear. But they're renowned for not being very good breeders, aren't they? That's correct. I mean, I think, again, I'll caveat this by saying I'm not a panda bear expert. <laughs> that being said, I think there's an argument that actually they are almost on their way to... Um, dying out regardless because they are so poor at survival skills in general. You know, yes. They just sort of stumble around the place eating bamboo. Well, that's a new one for the CV. I can't wait to blag that in my next interview. But look, I'm looking forward to speaking to you next week. We'll be moving on to a different topic and I'll speak to you then. Challenging, difficult week uh, personally and professionally to navigate in regards to the UK-China space, uh, but really appreciate us trying to put facts to the stories. Mm.